Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the DC King Care Alliance podcast. Today is Friday, June 19th, 2020, and I'm Marla Spindell, the executive director of DC King Care Alliance. And I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie McClellan, deputy director. We also have a special guest today that we'll tell you about in a moment, but we wanted to talk about the importance of this day in history. This day is also known as Juneteenth, short for June 19th, and marks the day when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1865 to take control of the state and ensure that all enslaved people be freed. The troops' arrival came a full two and a half years after signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Confederate General Robert E. Lee had surrendered two months earlier in Virginia, but slavery had remained relatively unaffected in Texas, until Union General Gordon Granger stood on Texas soil and read General Order No. 3, which stated, The people of Texas are informed that In accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. And so finally, on this day in 1865, slavery was finally abolished in all of the United States. Today, we welcome Dante Massey, a Ward 8 resident and relative caregiver to his younger siblings. In 2018, when he was 29 years old, he took responsibility for four of his younger siblings ranging in age from 8 to 17 years old when their mother could no longer care for them. Dante continues to raise his two younger brothers and a younger sister, and he is a member of the D.C. Ken Care Alliance Community Advisory Board. We wanted to talk with Dante today about his experiences growing up as a black male in Ward 8, caring for his siblings, as well as how violence in his neighborhood and encounters with the police have impacted his life. Dante, welcome to the show. Hello, welcome. We're very excited that you wanted to join us today and talk about your lived experiences with us, and hopefully it will help other people to understand your experiences better. All right, thank you. So, Dante, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, like where you grew up, what your life was like then. All right. So, I was born in Washington, D.C. I lived in, um, we had to move with my aunt. So, I lived with my aunt until I was 14, and we lived in Calvert County. So, I moved from Washington, D.C. to stay with my aunt in Calvert County, me and my two brothers. And I stayed there until I was about 14. And then my dad got out of jail and he got me from my aunt. And I moved with my dad. So once I moved with him, I lived in Waldorf. So I moved from D.C., Calvert County to Waldorf, from Laurel to Waldorf. It's a lot of moving around, but that's where I'm from. So tell us when you came back to D.C. Came back to D.C. when I moved with my dad, um, when we were taken from my mom, I wasn't allowed in D.C. So my dad introduced me to my mom again once we got back from Calvert County. And so I would say I was about 16. And um, ever since then, I was in D.C. Can you 
tell us a little bit about what your life was like as an adult before you started caring for your younger siblings? I had a fun life. I had a lot of friends and I worked maybe three jobs like all my life and three jobs at a time I would say so. So I worked for Comcast. I was a installer, a technician for a field technician for Comcast. Um, and then I left from Comcast and then I went to Metro. I was the interior cleaner for Metro. I was there for five years as a supervisor for Metro. I lost that job because I fit the description of someone who robbed a Burger King um, 10 miles away from where I was. And that was my first time being arrested. And I was 28. That was my first time being arrested. and. They said I fit the description of someone who robbed Burger King 10 miles away from where I was. So I was locked up for five days. And during that time, it was like a no call, no show. So they already automatically fired me. And once I got out, I was on uh, probation. I had to go see a parole officer every Tuesday and wear an ankle bracelet. And it kind of affected I was over I worked overnight and then to the cleaner so I had to be in the house at 10 o'clock so I couldn't work so I got over that and I work for um, RCM of Washington which is a mental health organization I was a community navigator at first I would teach people with disabilities how to navigate on their own like the transit or whatever they wanted to do, try to help them in any type of way, fulfill any type of goal that they wanted to complete. So that was a navigator. And then I was promoted to a direct specialist for the mental health department. And that was like one-to-one situation. I, my client was a two-to-one, so it was a two staff members to one person. And I love that. I love that job the most out of all my jobs. Tell us what you loved about it. I loved taking care of the people we supported and having them have someone who has their back, you know, because people with disabilities are most likely looked down upon and they need that extra person who can speak what they're thinking, you know. Maybe I understand them better than someone else understands them and I'm able to advocate for them. So that's the best part about it, having them feel like they've been heard. <laughs> so what has taking in and caring for your younger brothers and sister been like for you? I lost my job with RCM. Uh, we were in a shelter. Um, I had got my brothers and sisters, and um, I lived with a friend, but there wasn't enough space for everyone. So I went into a shelter, and me being in the shelter, I had to check in at nine and I couldn't leave them in there. And I would like we would drop them off at school and then I'll be end up late for work. We were in the shelter in uh, Georgia Avenue Northwest and their school is in Southeast DC. Like my brother's school is St. Thomas Morris on Third Street Southeast. And there was like 45 minutes and that's just his school. And then school was in Minnesota Avenue, so I had to figure out the route to get them there, and then I still would end up being late for work about 30 minutes, 45 minutes, so I try to leave earlier, and the school, I would have to sit out front of the school until the school opens, and it was just a lot 
of things that I wasn't used to and my job wasn't used to from me and that's how I lost my job so taking them in kind of put a pause on everything so yeah so you weren't able to care for your brothers and sisters and keep your job because there was too much that you would have to do to be able to get them to school and you couldn't get to work on time because of that yep can you tell us a little bit about some of the other challenges of caring for your sibling maybe a little bit about the shelter and what it's been like for you trying to get benefits for them okay take a breath for a second and trying to get keep it together <laughs> yeah it was horrible um, it was mice they ate the oranges that we had like sitting on the table we walked in the room one day and we seen three big mice like running so we went over there and I noticed like the oranges were fell on the floor like picking up the oranges and I could see the the oranges that have been eaten by the mice so that was like one of the terrible things. And then the fact that we only had one room and so I had to sleep on the floor while the kids got to bed. But then the most terrible part was, <sighs> it's just, it just terrible. Uh, we spent Christmas there. But after all of that, we did, they did help us find an apartment and it's great. The apartment is great, but the landlord is a slumlord, I would say. Not to try to degrade anybody, but that's just my personal opinion. And the neighborhood is terrible. My brother was robbed, my 19-year-old brother, brother now he's 19 now, robbed um, the first day, like the first week. And my sister was followed home by a man. So it, just, it, was, it was just a lie. The man uh, following my sister home from school um, and like making sexual gestures to her. She was only 12 at the time. So make sure I drop her off and pick her up every day. And then for my other sister to come get the kids and take them to the park and when she brings them back home, it's a war. Like, they start shooting, three people start shooting at another three people and who's happened to be my neighbors. So it was just like, she got shot in the back of her neck and it was terrible. The whole situation is terrible. And I've been trying to keep it together. <laughs> That's horrible. Can you tell us who it was that got shot in the neck? Um, my uh, younger sister, she's, she's 23 now. Um, she's 23. And, um, yeah. She was a part of the brothers and sisters who were taken the first time from my mom. So we are, like, really close. And she come over almost every day. So one time when she well, came that, over, that that's when that happened? Yeah, she was dropping the kids off, and she was getting back in her car. And they started shooting, and then they shot her while she was ducking down in her car. 
in front of my house. That sounds so scary. Like really difficult circumstances to raise children in. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about how you're able to raise them, how it's been to get benefits for them when you haven't been able to work while you've been taking care of them? All right. The first eight months, we had no support at all. They told me I didn't qualify for the subsidy that most people would be qualified for because I wasn't a grandparent or a great aunt. But then I met Stephanie McCullough <laughs> at the courthouse and told her what was going on. So I remember when I talked to you, you were willing to advocate for broadening the requirements for the grandparent caregiver subsidy so that other close relatives could get the subsidy too. And yeah. we really appreciate you doing that. And because of your advocacy, the law was changed, and now we have a close relative caregiver subsidy. So yeah. has that helped at all? It's helped a whole lot. Anything is better than nothing that I was getting. So I'm grateful beyond grateful for it. Yeah, it's helping a lot. Can you tell us what it's been like trying to get Hannah and SNAP for your family? Going down to the building is the worst part. The longest process, and I think I've done it maybe 13 times in the past two years, and a year and a half. It's terrible. They've cut my tennis and SNAP off, I believe, maybe six or seven times from the first time that I've applied. And that's just what I just remember off the top of my head, probably more. It's a back and forth process of them wanting to give services to me because I have, they're not my children, they're my brothers and sisters. So one time they cut me off for child support when they're not my children. And it's just difficult. So basically they were accusing you of failing to pay child support, so you cut off your TANF, but you don't have any children that you're supposed to be paying for child support for, right? Yeah, I don't have any children at all. <laughs> yeah. So they mistakenly so. put your siblings in the system as your children and they cut off your TANF? Yes, that's what it was. And can you tell us about, like, the most recent time? I know that was a few months ago, but it, it happened again recently, too, right? Yes. They cut it off uh, with no notice. They just cut it off and told me that I had to submit some documents for my brother. Like, he's still in school, but I already submitted the documents to them. And it was just like, after Stephanie, you know, after you helped me with, contacting everyone who needs to be contacted. I called and I checked the ballots and it still says zero. So I called the service center and a young lady, I forget her name, she answered the phone and she said it was just an all around mess. Like they should have never touched it, should have never turned it off in the first place. And that the next day it was on, like the TANF was on there. Sounds like a lot of bureaucracy going on with trying to get benefits and then trying to keep yourself on when you get knocked off for no reason. Right. 
seems like a full-time job just dealing with that. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's just a full-time job period. I yeah. feel like I have no life anymore, but <laughs> it's, I, I think it's imagine. getting better now. It's getting, it's getting better. I just know, I feel it, if I can get away from this location, it'll be much better. But when we first moved in here, from the time my brother got robbed, I felt like this was not a good area. And then for my sister to get shot and almost lose her life. <sighs> yeah. So have you thought about leaving your neighborhood? Can you tell us what happened if you've asked to move from the neighborhood? Yeah, I asked uh, my caseworker, and she said she was going to sign me up for an emergency transfer. But that was almost two months ago, and it doesn't look like I'm moving anywhere. Um, other than I have the Equal Rights, Ms. Susan McClanahan from the Equal Rights Organization, she's trying to assist me with moving. And it's looking promising, but it's really no reassurance of when. And they shoot over here almost every other day, so I don't know. Did the police do anything to try to stop the violence and the shooting in your neighborhood? We have a police camera on the corner of our block. It's like a tall light pole looking machine that flashes red and white lights and I think it records the whole area. And we also have a police car and they sit at the corner of each side, like one side is a one way street. So they'll either sit at the beginning of the street or they'll sit at the end of the street, but they still shoot. Did they ever get out of their cars? No, they don't. They say they are, because he's supposed to be stationed right there. He can't leave from that spot. Yeah. So what do you think would help to stop the violence in your neighborhood? I would think having a patrol foot presence of police walking back and forth maybe. I don't know, like more community events or something where people can get to know each other. I don't know. Me personally, I don't even know the cause of the violence, so I don't know the solution. But I think if it was more interaction, people would be able to feel more comfortable around police officers. Like, they at the corner, but I'll cross the street before I walk towards their car, you know? So it's an intimidation for them to be sitting right there, but not just for the criminals, but the criminals don't even care, but for just the people who live right here, I don't feel comfortable going up and knocking on the police window saying anything to them. I don't feel comfortable, like, waving them down without feeling like I'm going to get harassed. Tell us a little bit about your experiences with police and why you don't feel comfortable doing that. My experience with the police has been terrible, and not just in Washington, D.C. I also worked for Marriott. I was an installer for Marriott where I installed the hotel rooms. This was like one of maybe my third job. I'm just gonna start from the beginning, it's gotten on mine. But we traveled to Tupelo, Mississippi and it was my first time ever encountering a racist anything. So I was in Tupelo, Mississippi and I was in the Greyhound and I had 
we stayed there for a month and a half. So I had luggage and I had a lot of carry-on bags and like two pillows for the trip. And I didn't have one about, but my pants was sagging a little bit. And the bus driver, when we were in line to line up, the bus driver, he looked at me. It was my turn. Everybody else went through. It was my turn. He looked at me. He looked at me up and down. And he said, pull your effing pants up. So I looked at him, and then I checked to see if he was talking to me, so I looked behind him. And he said, yeah, pull your effing pants up. So I said, don't you see all this stuff in my hand? Once I get on the bus, I will pull my pants up. You're not getting on my bus. I put the stuff down, pull my pants up, put the ticket on this thing, put my stuff under the bus, got on the bus. No, you're not riding my bus. I put, pulled my pants up before I even did anything. I didn't want to interact with them anymore. I pulled pull my pants up, picked my stuff back up, put the stuff under the bus, put the ticket on the, on the clipboard, put my stuff under the bus, walked on the bus. You're not getting on my bus. You get off my bus. Get off. So I sat down. He called the police. The police came. They looked at me, pointed to off the bus. I got up, got off the bus. And long story short, I had to wait 12 hours for another Greyhound. They told me that they didn't have any jurisdiction to let me back on the bus, but they had authority to take me off. And that was the first time I encountered racism. Everyone in there was Caucasian, and I, and I never had a problem, you know, with any. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I know I didn't do anything wrong. So it was that was the first time. So the second time, I've always, you know, came in contact with police officers. I'm getting pulled over, and I got to get out the car and get in handcuffs for them to search the vehicle every time. And once they search it, they find nothing, they take me off the handcuffs and let me go. They say they're detaining me for their safety and mine. So they're not arresting me, they're detaining me and they have to search my vehicle. So I asked for the probable cause. They say there's no, there's no problem, there's, we, we, we suspect something in the vehicle every time. So I don't fight and I don't argue. I sit down and let them search and then they let me go and then I drive off. So then, the worst time that I remember was when I was 27 years old. It happened when I was 27. I was on an okay. It happened when I was 27 years old, Halloween 2017. And I was with four of my friends. We had just left the party in Bladensburg Road. We were headed to a Halloween party and the club on P Street Northwest. I was with four of my friends. So they followed me. I saw them following me. So I'm driving regular. So they followed me then. I get in front of the club and I park. And they swarmed the car. I mean, it had to be like 30 police officers. And they was like, get out the car, get out the car. So I'm like, okay. Everybody got out the car. So we got out the car, put our hands, they separated us, put us on the side. So I'm asking them, like, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, the detectives will be here shortly to tell you. So they searched the car. They did everything. They had us out there for like two hours. So the detective never came. <sighs> they said uh, we had to, t they, they did a sobriety test. They had me walk in the middle of the street and the police lights were flashing in front of me, two officers on the side. 
one on each side, and they walked me in the middle of the street, and then they turned me around, and then they said, we got to take you down to the station so that the detectives can talk to you. So I'm like, what for, though? What do we do? They'll explain it to you once we get to the station. So they took my shoestrings out, they took everything off, put me in a paddy wagon, and transported me to the station. Then I get into the station, and it's three detectives. It's IRS and two detectives. So I'm asking them, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? So they say, where did you eat? Where did you go to eat? And I said, tell me what you did that day. So I told them everything that I did that day. And then they kept asking me, what did you eat? What did you eat? So I told them what we ate at the party before we came to the club. And they was like, so what did you eat? I said, so what's going on? Like, so I said, so it seems like I'm not going to get anywhere with you guys. Can I have a lawyer? So they said, okay. They hooked me up, took me back downstairs had me change into an all-white little trash bag jumpsuit, and they took me to Central Cell Block, is what it's called. And then I stayed in Central Cell Block, and I'm with my best friend, so it's, it's not just me. They locked me and my best friend up and let the other three go. So I still have no idea what they're locking me up for. We don't know. We're just sitting there. So then we spent the night in Central Cell Block, and then... We had to go to court in the morning. So they transferred us to a court building where we had to be in with everybody. And then I had to wait to see the lawyer. So the lawyer never came. And we had to go up there to the judge. And the judge says, what does the dog indicate? So they said the dog sat down and indicate was, it was a gun in the car. So he said, I don't understand all of this. Y'all need to fix this. Um, give you 24 hours to fix the police report. So we had to stay in jail Saturday, Sunday, and then we went to court on Monday. And the judge, he was like, no, Monday, something happened. Something happened Monday, and we had to go Tuesday. So when we get there, the judge says, too much, not really nothing. He didn't even look at us. He didn't look at the paper. He just said, we were let him out on a high-intensity program. So that means I had the ankle bracelet on, and I um, had to go see my parole officer. And I had to see her every Tuesday, pissing the cup, and that was that. So I had a court date for January 6th. So January 6th, the judge, Zoe Bush, she read the paperwork for the first judge who read the paperwork, and she was saying everything like you had arrested five people, but you let three go and kept two. The description is black with dread, no other description. And she asked me, she said, Mr. Matthew, what do you do for a living? I, she said, you've never been arrested. You're 28. I'm 28 now because my birthday was December 6th. So I'm 28. She said, you're 28 years old and you've never been arrested. What do you do for a living? I said, I'm the supervisor for the interior cleaners for Metro. So she grabbed the gavel, banged the gavel, said, personal reconnaissance, cut the ankle bracelet off him right now, and when is your case? And my lawyer said, they're trying to hold it for the whole nine months that they can hold it. She said, I can't wait for your case. I can't wait for your trial. So she said, they have him going down, pissing, peeing in a cup, she said, you don't have to do that anymore. Just call down there once a week and let them know that you're alive. So that's what I did. I had to call once a week and let them know.
So that was the good part. Then the ninth month came. I get a phone call from my investigator saying that they dropped the charges and that I don't have to call, I don't have to do anything, and then that was that. So that was another incident. So was that the incident where they thought that you were somebody that had robbed the Burger King? Is that the same incident yes. that you're talking about? That's the same. So they, yep, they said misidentified I you. Yes. The Burger King was 10 miles away from me. And and the only thing they said it was a white SUV. And out of 13 cameras at the Burger King, right by UDC, Connecticut Avenue, out of that Burger King, out of 13 cameras that they had, none of them worked. They said that the person came through the drive through ordered food, handed the cashier $500 in counterfeit money, and ordered her had the rest of the money out of the register, which totaled to five $20 bills. She, in a panic, this is what the police report said, in a panic, the cashier handed them the money, handed them the food, and they drove off. That was the story. Two people. Wow. The passenger had dreads, and the driver had a short haircut. I was the driver of my vehicle, and I had dreadlocks. Wow. So you went through no all weight. of that, even... So you had yep. nothing to do with that. Yep. Wow. The worst experience of my life. I lost everything. My job, my apartment, my car. I lost everything. I'm so sorry. It's really, really hard. And for them to say, oh, the case is dismissed. It's over. Mm-hmm. I tried every, I called Ellen. I wrote letters to everybody. <laughs> Like, and no one really cared. Like, another, another story. Yeah. So I'm a little, I'm just wanting to know a little bit more about when you've gotten pulled over other times. Has that happened a number of times where you just get pulled over by police randomly and they yeah. search the car? Yeah. How often does that yeah. happen? Often, more often than it should. Uh, they pull me over because I'm black with dreads all of the time. And they automatically assume that I'm the worst criminal. I have to get in handcuffs every time I get pulled over. Maybe not every time, but like 98% of the time I'm in handcuffs and they have to search the vehicle in order to let me go. Or they have to run my name through the databases of the whole world. And I'm sitting right. there for like 30 minutes and yeah. Have you or anyone of your friends been the victim of police brutality? <sighs> yeah. My friends, I've had friends. Okay, one incident, I was with my best friend. He just picked me up, and we were heading back to his house. We got pulled over on 44th Street Northeast. I had to be like 22. 2322. And they pulled us over. He had dreads, I had dreads. And they pulled us over, had us get out the car. They searched the car. The officer put a gun in the back seat of the car. 
I seen him put the gun in the backseat of the car and then wave it like, oh, we found a gun. So my best friend is going off. That is not my gun. Y'all didn't, we didn't never have, I never had a gun. I don't even own a gun. I never shot a gun. So they started laughing like it was a joke and pulled off. It's called the jump out squad. They jump out on you and then search your vehicle, search you, see if you have any guns or anything like that. And that's what we go through. In, in, in my area. Wow. They'll jump out if they think that you're doing something, if they think that you're doing it, if they look at you and you don't look like what you should look like, they'll jump out on you, search you, have you on the ground, clothes on the ground, face down, on the ground. Don't move, don't say nothing. That's how it is. Dante, it sounds like you've had so many tough experiences with law enforcement over the years. Do you have any thoughts on what police could do to be more sensitive to the black community and to do their job better, to protect you better? I think if they treat everyone as the same, it would be understandable. You know how to come at a person with discretion. You don't have to, just because I've been in the car with plenty of people. I've been in the car with plenty of Caucasian males who cussed the police out. Why are you pulling me over? What are you asking him for his ID for? And they won't say anything to them. Have a good day. And they may have been speeding and everything. So it sounds like there's a double standard. Yeah, it's just... If you treat everyone with the same respect, if you come to someone's car and they're disrespecting you, they're yelling at you, understandable, yes. Okay, I need to proceed with caution. But if it's yes, sir, no, sir, if you smell marijuana, if you smell something, then yes, you have probable cause to search the car. Okay, they, they might be hiding something. Or, you know, you, you, don't, you never know. You never know what someone has in their car, and that's how they feel. I understand that. I've also seen plenty of videos where the police officers come up to somebody's car and they just get shot automatically. And that's why you're having the, one of the hardest jobs in the world. So I'm, just, I'm not saying, like, everything that they do is wrong, but they could work a lot on how to come at certain people. Everyone's not the same. Everyone is not a bad person. So, Dante, if you had a magic wand and could be living anywhere you wanted and doing anything you wanted right now, what would your life look like? Oh, of course I would rather live in the biggest mansion in the world, but (laughs) a magic (laughs) wand, if I had a magic wand, I would be living, I don't know, I would live somewhere warm. I would have my family with me who live in the biggest house somewhere warm. And I probably would be a lawyer or, you know, a stockbroker or something. <laughs> wow, that sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want our listeners to know about you and your family and your community? About me, I would say just a hard worker, just a family man. I've been through so much and I, if I can help my brothers and sisters in any kind of way to not go through what I've been through, 
I'm going to do that as much as possible. And my family, my mom, she's, you know, she just, she had a, a mental breakdown. And I work with people with mental health, so I always sympathize for someone who can't really advocate for themselves. And, or, but they, they say you make your bed to lie in it, but I want to help her out as much as possible. Just because I know what it's like. I I know how it feels to think your mom is dead or not being able to see your family. And I would never let that happen to them. So Dante, thank you so much for sharing some really tough things with our listeners so that they can yeah. understand what your life and the lives of people in your community is life. And I want to say if any of our listeners would like to consider Dante for an employment opportunity, please contact DC Kin Care at info at dckincare.org, and we will make sure to connect you with them. Thank you so much, Dante. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you, guys. Bye, Dante. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.